welcome to the MindChimp Podcast. Hey Geffen, welcome to the MindChimp Podcast. How are we doing? Very good, thanks. How are you? I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad. It's it's Friday evening. I'll just give you a bit of um, a bit of kind of detail. So right now, I've just had my house decorated. So I'm in the office, but there's a bit of an echo. So I'm kind of in this makeshift kind of podcast soundproofing den. So yeah, it's a That's good fun. place to be on a Friday evening. <laughs> what the, the spare room that I'm sat in with the cat locked outside. The cat was pretty keen to be part of this podcast, but uh, she's not allowed. She's She's got nothing to say on the employee experience, so we'll leave her out of the room. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. So I guess before we, we get into anything, Giffen, I, I tend to ask my guests um, to pick four numbers from one to a hundred. So could you pick four random numbers for me, please? Okay, number three. Okay. Number 18. Yep. Number 33. Okay number 50 perfect we will come we'll come back to them a little bit later on i guess i tend to ask my guests as well getting kind of to kind of come up with a, a summary a, a log line of, of, of a kind of a summary of what they're about um what what would yours be oh what a great question um i can't the, the first thing that springs to mind is one whenever i used to you know i haven't done it in a while but every time i used to start kind of seriously dating somebody i always like to be able to tell them that no matter what i do everything is done with the best of intentions. I'm always, I always try to do the right thing. Um, and I think that's probably a good summary of how I live my life. Obviously, I don't necessarily always succeed in doing that, but I try to do the best by people and try and do the right thing, whether that's in work or outside of work. So maybe that's a good summary, I don't know. Perfect, perfect. I guess before we get into kind of, you know, who Geffen is and, and the book and whatnot, I guess I tend to ask, ask my guests, when, when you was in school, and, and and the the teacher would say to you, "What do you want to be when you grow up? What is it you would you would say back to that teacher?" So weird. So I remember in school we used to have these career kind of talks, you know, where you ask a series of questions about what you enjoy, what you like doing, and uh, you know, we had a kind of careers advisor would then come up with the ideal job for you based on how you answer those questions. It's probably all automated now. There's probably a machine that does it. But, <laughs> um, when I went to school, um, what came out of that was a state agent or window dresser. Um, neither <laughs> window dresser looked a bit attractive for a while when the film Mannequin was out, and it was it looked like quite a cool job. But um, it, uh, yeah, neither neither one of those ever really appealed. Um, but from a very early age, um, right up until I was kind of sixteen, seventeen, um, I always wanted to be an animator, and I was dead set on doing clay animation. And that was back in the days where it was starting to get a bit popular. Oh right, okay, fair enough. So so I guess. And we'll we'll touch upon that a little bit later on down the line, but it's just come to me kind of we we got in contact via Twitter and and whatnot. Um, it was a tag I think someone tagged in about you know your book your book and stuff. But maybe you could give us a bit of a whistle stop tour of kind of yeah where you've come from to kind of where you are right now and yeah some of the some of the touch points throughout that journey. So I'm um so I'm one of twins. So I've got a twin brother. Um non-fraternal so he doesn't look like me apparently he's better looking but that's that's subjective <laughs> um, and uh when we were younger he was always really into sport or you know football rugby all that kind of stuff and and i was just never really like that i used to just like staying in and kind of drawing and you know art was kind of my passion as a kid and right the way through my teenage years and so by the time i was about kind of 10 11 12 years old i was dead set on becoming an animator um my parents couldn't afford a video camera at the time. You know, they were they were big machines back then in the uh, um, early 90s, and they were pretty expensive. And my neighbor offered me a job in his welding and fabricating firm on Saturdays. 
just kind of cleaning up, degreasing steel, painting, you know, steel fences that he fabricated, things like that, um, for me to be able to um, afford a, a camcorder. And I saved this money up and I saved as much as I could. And then as soon as, and as soon as it came to Christmas, I still didn't have enough money to buy a camcorder, but my parents managed to find a secondhand one and I had that as my Christmas present. Um, and I used to sit in my bedroom and literally make these models out of clay and then animate them, you know, just frame at a time and create these animations. Um, and I really, really enjoyed doing that all the way through school. I was involved in all the school pantomimes and school plays. I was, I was generally one of the, the primary characters in whatever play we were putting on, but I also designed all the posters for all of our, our pantomimes and shows. I did um, all the sets, you know, me and a group of friends did all the set design and stuff like that. So art was a, a really big feature of my life growing up. And by the time I hit 16 and was doing work experience, um, I did a little bit of work experience with um, Arden Animations and so worked with Nick Park just as Wallace and Gromit was getting popular. Um, worked with a firm in uh, Cardiff that did um, what is now a, a really popular um, Levi's advert with the Mr. Bombastic theme tune, which is kind of the song that brought Shaggy to the mainstream when uh, when he was around. And, um, and I think what started to lose the glamour of that is when I was working for um, ITV um, as part of this um, work experience the guys who are in the animation room just they didn't earn much money at all and I was I was spending more money on my lunch than than those guys were and I was kind of 16 and um, they kind of told me that you know they loved it but it was a hard graft and it was a difficult ways to bring a family up on and so that kind of distracted me a bit um, career-wise um, but nevertheless was intended to go to art college um, ended up doing art, English, literature, and sociology for A-level, um, decided then to go into psychology, so did a psychology degree, um, and then straight out of psychology, and I found that degree quite hard, actually, to be honest. I think, um, you know, I think a, a, a lot of people I worked with had already done psychology A-level, so the first year was pretty straightforward for them, but it was quite difficult for me, so I struggled a little bit in university. Um, and uh, as soon as I left university, then I basically kind of press ganged as many um, television companies as I could um, and ended up getting um, getting some work with a, a TV firm that was making a documentary on big business brains and following them around for 24 hours. So it was a television program called So What Do You Do All Day? And we followed people like uh, Sir Cameron McIntosh and Richard Branson around for the day and created a documentary about 24 hours in their life. So got my first kind of credits on a television program really, really quickly. I uh, did some loads of work with, with local radio then, did some programs for BBC Wales, did some programs for Channel 4. Um, and then that work started to really dry up. Um, had a program idea bought, almost bought by BBC Three, but then that was dropped. And by this point, I'd been out of work for about three or four months. And my dad was on at me to get a proper job. Television wasn't a proper mm -hmm. job. I needed to get a proper office job or something. Um, and so uh, applied for a job in the annuities department in legal and general pensions. Um, and uh, yeah, very quickly worked my way up there, became manager of the team. I joined in quite a short space of time, um, left, moved to London, got a job in Barclays. That's when I started to get into employee benefits, employee engagement. Then left there to help a startup, kind of disagreed with the way that startup was going. Uh, set up an employee benefits department at, at one of uh, the UK's largest insurers at the time. Um, and then shortly after that, moved to Benefex um, and have been at Benefex for about the last eight years doing various different roles. Okay. So, so it's interesting. I mean, wow, what, what, what a journey so, so far with that. I mean, 
kind of talk, just talking about what kind of in the day of a life of. So, so what is that kind of a case of you would you would follow around? I mean, you know, Richard Branson. Would you follow them around for a full day and and kind of understand their how they work, or is it just kind of more from a from a kind of a, a general overview and kind of look at how, you know, I, I guess kind of I've I've never seen you know having never seen the show. What 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 was that like? It was it was BBC Two. It was about eight or nine o'clock in the evening, so it was it wasn't prime time, but it was um, it was pretty well received. I think it got a couple of million viewers. Um, it was the television program that gave Adrian Childs his leap from radio to television, um, which uh, I feel a bit disappointed <laughs> I had a hand in that, to be honest. But um, we probably should have stuck to radio. But we yeah we literally just a, a couple of production people and a film crew and just followed around these prominent business people. Um, for pretty much 24 hours and um, part of my job my primary role was reviewing all of the 24 hours worth of footage um, and then trying to pick out the best bits to bring that down to a kind of 25 minute 30 minute show cool so, so kind of spinning off from that and so so what does a day in the life of Geffen look like then right now um, so at the moment so it's kind of um, yeah so it's kind of it's pretty varied so um, at the moment as director of well-being for benefits um, I've been exploring how benefits can use technology to improve um, employee well-being. We think that's a significant part of the employee experience and specifically how can we help and what kind of problems will people come to benefits to solve. So a typical day at the moment is spend some time with our clients just to talk about kind of what they're doing around well-being. Um, we have a product that is currently kind of in prototype mode. So I've been getting clients to test that. Um, I do quite a lot of speaking gigs. I do between kind of five and 10 speaking opportunities now on behalf of Benefix pretty much every month. So I spend a lot of time at conferences, which obviously helps me to understand the challenges HR are going through at the moment, what they need support with. Um, I try to write as much as I can as well. So I try to write um, blog content uh, as often as possible. Um, and the job still involves a little bit of kind of business development and sales as well. So. Um, primarily kind of thought leadership on behalf of Benefix, although I don't know, I don't like that phrase, but I'm not quite sure how else to, how to phrase it, um, and some product development at the moment, and um, and training our own staff as well on kind of well-being and the future well-being and the problems we think we can help solve. Okay, cool. So I guess for, for my listeners who, who don't know who you are, you know, I think everything kind of employee experience and stuff is, is your world, is your bread and butter, so to speak. But I guess kind of building on that and it, and I find the term employee experience or you know and employee engagement I think the two separate things but definitely are um in my mind but what's what's your definition of uh, yeah let's 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 go even more general what is employee experience to you so I think in, employee experience is kind of um t- to me it's the it's no different to something like the customer experience so it's the total sum of all the interactions you have whilst working for an employer um, that will typically start before you start working for that employer. So any interactions you have with that employer brand or even that consumer brand, um, right the way through to you may be applying for a job, having an interview, going through that process right up until the day you leave. Um, and in many cases now, the day you leave isn't the last time you have anything to do with that business because you might come back and you might be a boomerang employee. So that employee experience kind of starts quite long after you start and um, before you start a job and continues quite long after so, so i think i think it's really interesting i think for me it um so my background is kind of play experience human-centered design and experience design that's probably if someone said to me you know guns ahead summarize what you do there and my three things i, I think 
employee experience is kind of it's really interesting I'm, I'm kind of doing some blogs on this at the moment but for me i think it's like you you know you talked about the touch points i think employee experiences it's not this cycle it's this this collection of moments and and these moments are the things what shape you know it's the fundamental is the reason why you can remember your your te- your favorite teacher's name she gives you an experience and that experience has had an impact on you and and for me that's what employee experience is it's it's many of, of them moments i think that's exactly right and i think it, i think it's a really good point because i think it's a lot of things people miss about the employee experiences you know there's that great Maya angelou quote that people will forget what you did but they won't forget how you made them feel and that's pretty much what the experience is is you're creating this collection of, of experiences, the kind of micro experiences that people will have. But ultimately, it's how they feel having those experiences that's really going to resonate. You know, the thing you actually do probably comes secondary to how you made them feel. Um, and obviously, if they feel great, then they'll feel more loyal and productive and engaged at work. So so when, you know, I was kind of, I was looking a couple of weeks ago and I read this blog post and I, I didn't post it in the end. I kind of just kept it on the back burner and let it mature a little bit and see how I feel about it, you know, later on down the line. When it comes to kind of employee experience, you know, you've got the employee, exp- the life cycle, so to speak, and whatnot. And I think a lot of people either misunderstand employee experience and what its goal is, or, or maybe they just have this, this, un- this, this other understanding of it and the first thing you know most people do is kind of click on it and go employee experience image boom and they get the you know the typical circle and the life cycle of that what, what's, your, what's your take on that um i think it's i think to be honest it's um the employee experience's definition has is, is not really been kind of solidly defined by anybody which means you know there's a couple of people who put their names in the hat and have written books on it um and they broadly agree on what it is but you know people get pretty hung up on you know how do I measure this and how do I put a score to it and it's not a real thing unless I can measure it um and I think the employee experience is, is kind of like a feeling so it's less tangible than that mm. but I think what the market has really done with the employee experience is you get people like Josh Burson saying you know this is the next big thing employee experience is where you should be focusing almost immediately after he released a report around the employee experience um people rebranded themselves as an employee experience <laughs> provider and we have people in our market who sell discount t- cinema tickets and they call that employee exper- their employee experience provider. We have people who offer kind of free coffees and discounts and perks, but they call themselves employee experience technology. Um, and you've kind of got then people on the bigger end of the scale who are, who are selling large scale consultancy and calling it employee experience design. And actually, you know, those little bits contribute to the employee experience, but you know, you can't you can't buy a piece of technology that will solve your employee experience issues. And people seem to think you can buy this stuff off the shelf. And they used to do it with engagement. Um, and unfortunately, I think we've now got to the point where employee experience has become, for so many people, more of a marketing term, just the way that employee engagement was, without anyone really thinking about what is this. You know, it's for my search engine optimization, it's going to do me really good to mention the phrase employee experience as many times as I can in as many blogs that I post. Um, and uh, so it's just become a bit of a marketing term, but certainly the people that I know and the organizations I know that are really doing good things around the employee experience, they kind of see through that quite easily, but it, it doesn't stop people kind of watering down that term for the rest of us. And, and, and I guess kind of just building on that, and, you know, I think I was talking to you before we press record and, and I was saying kind of, you know, I was doing employee experience before I knew it was employee experience, so to speak. Yeah, I think it was about 2004, 2005, I created this employee experience team. And 
you know, I, I guess in my um, in my journey at that time, having employee experience as a tag, a brand, whatever you want to call it, wasn't important because for me, you know, it, it's interesting kind of employee experience is fundamentally for me, it's actually, it's humans, right? And, and it is, like you say, more visceral and kind of more feeling based and, and I think we we see the thing which you mentioned about all of a sudden everyone becoming employee um, experience experts. I've seen that personally in, in kind of my area of, of work, which is kind of more in um, learn development. Well, you, could, you could probably point that finger at me, right? You know, I've, you know, I would tell anybody that, you know, since since I gave up television and worked in pensions, I was starting to get involved in probably what is the most popular and most uh, heavily invested benefit that any one of us will get, especially in the UK. You know, pension is kind of always the number one benefit and that's become more significant over the last couple of years. And um, the benefits you get from work will contribute to your experience. Some of those will mean nothing to you. Some of them will mean quite a lot to you and be quite significant additions to your reward package. So um, I've had a toe in the experience uh, kind of arena for years but like you say any anyone who's been doing anything to help the life of the employee whether that's internally or externally has been doing something towards employee experience design we just either didn't have a name for it or it wasn't as easily digestible as, as perhaps it is now because there were more books about it than there was you know when you started kind of 10 15 years ago so so i guess kind of when you know when it comes to kind of, of employee experience you've got kind of a very basic approach of kind of environment, tech, and then kind of, yeah, environment, tech, and then, you know, the the, the other aspects of it being being kind of a people and stuff. But, you know, it, like, as, as probably said from the, from the beginning, it, it's, it's much more than that. Where do you see personally, and, and yeah, where do, you, where do you see big companies or, or maybe old clients or things just in, in the environment? Where do you see people kind of, letting things slip or missing a trick when when it comes to this this employee experience design i think the biggest mistakes i see people so i guess first of all the reason why i wrote the book was i i've been lucky enough to work with some really good brands um all around the world through benefex and through my other employers um and i still still see so many organizations making some really small silly mistakes um and if you look at all the major books around the employee experience, they're all quite dictatorial. I felt like they were all heavily kind of almost like school textbooks, really hard to digest. But they were also kind of telling you Google does it this way. So if you do it this way, you will be like Google. And the reality is, is you know, most people in this country work for an SME. Most people who work for those companies, you know, those companies don't have the kind of budgets that Google has. So they can't be as experimental if they need to do if they want to make something towards employee experience and they're going to invest money they need to be pretty confident that that's going to work because they just don't have the kind of experimental money that the large organizations do. And so I started looking at, you know, there's lots of little things that people can do, small policy changes, just changing the way they communicate or talk to their employees, you know, taking a more human centered approach to how they design policies, procedures, the tech that they use at work, all these different things that require very little investment. And in many examples, require no policy changes at all and no investment whatsoever. So I was really keen to put that stuff in a book and then be able to say to somebody, you could read this book today and tomorrow you could go and make changes to your workplace, whether that's just in your little team, whether it's just the way you interact with your colleagues or whether it's at a more higher level, at board level or, or HR level. 
Um, it doesn't have to be a big technology purchase. And I felt like that's the way the market was heading is it's quite neat for us to be able to buy stuff to solve problems. People like doing that because it's uh, it's obviously a lot easier for HR. HR are kind of the famously busy department within any organization. And, you know, if we're banging on them more and more to make you know more human connections with their employees, some of the stuff they need to do needs to just become easier because they need to have more time to actually do that human stuff because that stuff takes time. You know, face-to-face, hands-on human approach takes more time than just rolling out a piece of technology. Um, and so I think, you know, one of the most common errors is, is things like policy change. You know, people just, there's an organization I was talking to fairly recently who, who do loads of stuff around their well-being for their staff and um, and their staff, you know, really appreciate all the kind of money that goes into social uh, the social aspects of work. Um, but if you ask any of those employees, there's two major policies at HR level that are pretty outdated that they don't like. And actually, it's kind of like, you know, you're investing in all this area to improve the kind of the social well-being and the mental well-being of your staff. Yeah, actually, there's two policy changes you could make overnight that would improve those more than where you're investing the money now. And I think we see that quite a lot where money's been invested, not where employees want it, but where HR or the wider business thinks it should be spent. Yeah, and I, I guess that comes down to kind of that, that um, you know, audience insight, right? And and kind of empathising with the, frustra- the frustrations the people in the front line are feeling rather than making this, this assumption, you know, and it's kind of, you know... I, I use this analogy of kind of fish where the fish live and, and that applies I guess in the employee experience world because fundamentally you can you can throw lots of money at, at problems what you think are but you know usually it's that one degree of change where you make it now and it's going to have the biggest impact later on down the line but so I guess kind of just just breaking off that then what's who's who's the people who in your eyes, who nail employee experience? And when I say nail, I mean in like the positive sense. Like who who's really standing out for you at this moment with employee experience? I think there's some really good examples. You know, um, there are some really big brands that make some silly mistakes, but do some really really good stuff. You know, there's people. You know, Google do some really good stuff, and um, Salesforce do some really really good stuff. Um, uh, Spotify do some really good stuff. Netflix do some really good stuff. Amazon do some really good stuff. But you know, some of those have had you know criticisms in the media. Not everything they do is really really good. Um, but we've got a um, we've got a client um, at Benefex who um, you know have had some involvement with, and they've won so many awards for what they do. Um, PKF Cooper Parry. Um, they're a, a UK based accountancy firm, but they do not act or look like an accountancy firm. If you've gone into their offices and you see the, or you meet any of their staff, you'll think you're meeting people that work for something like Google or some kind of online marketing company. Um, and they've just basically identified that, you know, the clients don't deal with accountants like they used to. So the old kind of middle-aged white man in a gray suit, that's not, that's not a real life interpretation of what an accountant's firm should look like. It's not this all male, old boys club that it used to be. And so they put huge amounts of care and attention into design and employee experience that is more relaxed. You know, they, they allow people to bring dogs to the office. They have remote work and they've got really nicely designed offices that are really kind of casual and laid back and they've won plenty of awards for it. And all the changes that the board um, have made have just seen this company grow and grow and grow. And it's just a company that in the regions they operate, people really want to go and work for because they've set this door out to say, you are really important as an employee. We care about you. 
you're going to design the employee experience yourself. We're not going to tell you how it should be. You tell us how it should be. Um, and if you look them up online, you know, they're just doing some really, really good stuff. And it's a really strong employer brand. Oh, nice. I'll, um, I'll, I'll have a look at them personally. So so I guess kind of it's interesting when we talk about kind of employee experience and, you know, where, where the experience starts and where the experience ends and, and actually, you know, when it comes into attracting new talent and whatnot and blah, blah, blah. But I kind of want to go into the stage of, of when it comes to interview stages, I guess. And, you know, in in interviews, we kind of told we've got to show our best selves and we've got to talk about all the great stuff we do. And, and for me, I think actually the better question to ask there is, you know, kind of what's your failures look like? And and actually, you know, we, we learn more from our failures than we do from our, our kind of our positive moments. So if I was to say to you kind of, Gethin, what does if you was to map out... Um, your failure resume what what one true failure stands out to you which maybe in the moment looked like a failure but maybe later on down the line it ended up being the, the biggest positive for you um so i think there was a company i worked with where um i left a pretty secure job to help somebody set up a business um and it required me to put a lot of effort in evenings and weekends to kind of get this started off the ground and i was continually put in a position that i was uncomfortable with um kind of pushed into a kind of role that I didn't want to do, but also put in some morally questionable situations that I was uncomfortable with. Um, and uh, and I think the kind of, the way I kind of handled that probably um, wasn't great. Um, and it resulted in me losing that job. Um, now, yeah, the reasons why I got fired from that job um, were, were kind of thinly veiled. It, you know, this person wanted to get rid of me. Um, and I even went as far as kind of getting legal advice because it was all really unfair and it was, um, you know, but yeah, I did, I think when I look back on it now, um, you know, that was about eight years ago um, and it significantly affected me, except it really affected me. It was the first time I'd ever really felt like I'd been screwed over by somebody and, um, and it bothered me for a really, really long time and it took me a long, long time to get over it. Um, and even as recently as January this year, it's kind of, I just still, you know, sometimes I think about that job and it would still bring up some um, pretty horrible feelings. And so even at the start of this year, I started seeing a counsellor for the first time. And when we just talked about my life, that came up and I got really upset and cried in front of this counsellor. Um, and, you know, we were kind of both agreed that, you know, this was eight years ago. And if you're still getting upset about it now, then something wasn't dealt with here. And so that kind of talking therapy has done a huge, huge amount for me in the last six months just to get over the fact that, I got screwed over um, and I probably made some mistakes in that as well. I think I did get screwed over, but I probably didn't help myself. So um, at the time, really difficult and clearly obviously something that up until very recently um, I've still been dealing with, but um, ultimately, you know, that's really driven my work ethic because it's made me so afraid of that kind of thing happen again and um, not want to let people down. And, you know, work has become such a big part of my life that, um, I, I can't afford for it to kind of fall down. So that spurred me on quite a little bit, proving to those people who screwed me over that, you know, they did treat me badly and I was I, I was worthy of um, being treated a little bit better, um, really spurred me on. And, um, you know, the, the network of people that kind of surround me at the moment and, and even some of those who, who were there at the time were so, so supportive. You know, it, it was less than two weeks before I had another job and that job was with one of our clients who was about to sign a contract who just wanted me to go in-house and, and do what I was, they were going to buy from us. Um, so it's, yeah, I think that's probably been a really big lesson. Um, 
but it spurred me on it's the reason why kind of i wrote the book it was very very fun to mind when i wrote the book because i know what it's like to be treated badly like an employer and i want to make sure every employer treats their employees fairly because i don't want anyone to go through what i went through yeah and i think it's really interesting something what you pulled out there and kind of you know some of the players who was around you at the time you know kind of the support which it gave you i think i think we see this a lot in 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 corporate environment where you know we we walk past each other maybe in 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 a hall or whatever and we say you're all right yeah you're all right i mean we kind of walk on we never truly stop and and kind of say you know actually are you all right it's kind of becomes you know this 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 statement of when you pass each other it's kind of high and and by and actually i think there's a there's a company free mobile their their well being program is like one I think they won an award for it and whatnot, and it's interesting to see how they're bringing the human touch back into this corporate this corporate world, and I think it's something what what we're seeing corporates kind of have have took the finger off a pulse on that for a while, and it's actually really nice to slowly start seeing corporates bringing this more human touch back into the work. Yeah, and I think we see that a lot with. Um... Yeah, that, that, that kind of human side when it comes to well-being, you know, well-being has become really important because obviously, you know, if we can't function as humans, what use are we going to be in any work environment? Um, and I think one of my biggest criticisms of how we deal with well-being is, is, you know, companies rely on open door policies. You know, it's fine for an organization to stand there and say, you know, if you're LGBTQ+, that's fine. Come and speak to us if ever you need anything. We're an inclusive environment. You can put a woman on your board and say that, you know, we are accepting of women and we think that women's rights are just as important than uh, as men's. And you can kind of have the most inclusive environment and you could be open and talking about your mental health and that kind of stuff and invite anyone who wants to come and speak to you who's feeling challenged in any part of their life to come and speak to you. That's all great. But I think fundamentally, I don't believe at all that these open door policies work because it's a big, big step for somebody who's struggling or is afraid or scared of what's going on in their life to take that step forward, to go and speak to somebody and look them in the eye and say, um, I, ne- I need some help from you. But that whole conversation becomes so much easier when somebody comes to you and just says, you know, can I help you? What, you know, are you, are you okay? You know, what do you, 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 you seem a bit off or, you know, can we just have a regular chat? And I think as soon as, another person opens up those channels you start to really get to the heart of the problem and if you really help that person with that problem then obviously you get yourself into a really really good position where not only is the organization and some people in hr whatever the department is starting to form closer bonds with that employee but that employee feels genuinely cared for Um, and i've worked for what i think is the caring employer for the last eight years and it has meant the absolute world and i know i've got so many friends who kind of I've just really worked in some toxic environments that, you know, if you saw their brands, you would think they're a really supportive, inclusive brand, but behind the four walls, they just haven't been. So it's one of the things I put in the book is, you know, a caring boss is the golden ticket of employment. If you find it, keep hold of it. Um, And that becomes so much more important than pay and benefits and everything else. Um, uh, So if you kind of get that, then that's what we should all kind of be striving for is to find an employer that cares about you and to be the kind of employer that cares for people. It's a really good thing what you bring up there. I guess kind of just reflecting on kind of my career while you was talking, it's when I look at, you know, I, I've been quite successful in what I do and, and I guess the, the biggest thing is that great boss and that great, 
boss who is a boss but actually can step away and, and, and become really personal with you and actually, you know, not be the manager but be the friend and, and whatnot. And, you know, I, I'll, it's very cliche to say we don't leave, you know, we don't leave companies, we leave bad bosses. But I think you see that a lot of the time when a, when a good boss moves on, you see the breakdown of of teams and fundamentally the, the business should have its... um is structure in place and maybe you know it's scaffolding in place to be able to support that team when a good when a good boss moves on it's really it's really funny i think you know years and years ago the the cringeworthy boss was david brent and he was the kind of boss that you know when the office started on television um and even when it kind of started again on the office us um they were you know michael scott and um david brent were advertised as these kind of cringe bosses you wouldn't want to work for but if you really look back at those television programs they were really, really supportive people who actually cared about their staff. And because they did that, even though they made some mistakes, the staff stayed loyal to them and they got the results the business did. Now, I know that's fiction, but it's um, you know, a great example of actually, you know, I think it, you know, it's like any part of your life. You know, when people really support me and do favors for me and I feel like I'm kind of trusted and supported by them, they're the people that as soon as they need help, I'll get in my car and I'll be straight over their houses, whatever it is. Um, and why can't we have that same relationship at work? So you know, I think it becomes a bit more of a, a behavioural thing. But when I, and when I use this this behaviour, and I think you see this a lot now in well, I see a lot of my timeline on LinkedIn and stuff about values and behaviours of a business. But I guess what what's your personal take on values and behaviours? I guess my, the way I stand with it is, I think ninety percent of the time we're either wrongly used or a waste of time. And the ten percent where I think I've seen them work really well, fundamentally, one of the biggest things is is we don't ask them to be matched our values and behaviours. We ask them to be themselves. So what what's what's your take on it? You know, when I say values and behaviours, I mean kind of that values and behaviours what they stick up on a board in in a room where everyone sees it, and then a week later it becomes kind of just background. But but what what's your take on values and behaviours within? The employee experience. I think. I think to be honest, my my opinions probably changed over the years. Um, I used to think it was really important for us to have values, so that we because I thought it was really important for us to recruit people that fitted the company values. I used to think it was kind of, you know, we can teach. You know, that we're not brain. Most of us aren't brain surgeons and do kind of extremely technical jobs. So finding the right personality to work with your organisation and fit in with the culture was really really important. And I still think that is really important. However when you recruit people aligned just to your values, you start to exclude some people that just because they're not aligned to your values might not, you know, they still might be able to add a huge amount to your organization that actually brings some great, some great work and some great ideas and innovation. Um, and it's almost like kind of <laughs> for not wanting to bring up Brexit so, but, um, <laughs> on a Friday night, but uh, it's uh, it's almost like you know you, we 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 can't say that everyone who voted leave is racist because it's just not true. So if you made that kind of divisive statement, you know, we only want people who voted for Remain and work in an organisation, you think you'd get a certain type of person. You probably would, on the whole, get a kind of left-leaning, um, uh, politically motivated person. But you're going to exclude huge amounts of people that made, you know, a, a very valid decision that worked for them. And I think we run the risk by recruiting people just to our values that we lose some of that diversity of thoughts and we lose some of that diversity of kind of background and upbringing. Um, so I think when we do design those values, I think it's really important that they reflect the employee base, which is why I think the employee base should be 
pretty much building most of them. I think it's really important to get the employees to kind of say, you know, what kind of an organization do you think we want to be? Because lots of people create values on the organization they are now. It's not necessarily aspirational to what do we want to become. Um, so I still think they've got a place, but I think they're almost, they're more like guidelines, I think. And I would certainly like to see more values being inclusive of the society we're working. You know, I'd rather somebody pin their colors to the mast and say, look, we are an inclusive environment. And if that's not for you, then maybe you should leave. Um, and I, I read a great article by, um, um, by uh, what's his name? T Tim um, from Apple, the, the CEO of Apple, um, Tim Cook. And uh, he was talking about how um, there was an employee that they had working for Apple in California who was uh, a very right-wing employee. And actually, they were struggling at work because they felt that Apple was such an inclusive, liberal environment. They were really struggling to work there. Yet, because they wanted to work for one of the world's leading technology companies, Apple was one of the people they had to work with. Um, and Tim Cook kind of responded to that, that story um, quite publicly. Because actually, you know, they needed to be careful that although they wanted to create the environment that they wanted to create as an organization, they needed to be mindful of excluding people that could bring a lot to the party. And so I think it's a really, really delicate balance and it's really difficult to do. But I think they do have the place. I think they are just more like a guideline than, than a rule. Yeah. And I think kind of my, my problem with values and, and for, you know, for the good things what they have is a lot of bad, I guess. And right now we're kind of looking at it from that kind of angle. But, you know, I think we've we see in corporates where the values become that rule as you mentioned and and actually you know when it comes to say mid-year or end of year or okrs or what whatever you would you put in place that we use them to guide people and for me i think that's, that's fundamentally the wrong thing to do because one it's easier to game it but actually two there's just so much nuance in the, in a value and how you how it's perceived personally and, in, and individually that yeah that's true it becomes it becomes a bit of a minefield i guess yeah, I guess it's, you know, if, if if you asked us to write down what would be our five values, um, yeah, like you say, I think that'd be, depending on your kind of your background, um, you might interpret that very differently. Um, and I guess the big balance then is you, you're trying to juggle what is the missions for the, or the values of the organization versus the people that work there. Because if you employ 10,000 people, you're not going to be able to accurately reflect the views of 10,000 people in five values. Um, so yeah, I think they, they've, it's probably part of the experience that's going to evolve. Um, and, and maybe, yeah, maybe, yeah, I guess I'm undecided, but maybe they've got no value at all. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm probably a bit agnostic between whether we should have them or not at the moment. Yeah. And I guess I'm thinking out loud here more than anything, but I just think actually, why don't we just ask every individual person, what do they want their five values to be? You know, yeah, I think that's really important. I think when you look at um, you know, organizations I've worked in and with who use things like OKRs to measure, you know, what are you bringing to the company? What do you want to achieve in the next 12 months? And then obviously you can align that with what do we want you to achieve in the next 12 months? And between those two things, you find a common ground where the employee is doing the work that they feel is important and exciting and useful. And you're getting them to do the work that the organization thinks is equally as important and useful. So, so kind of coming away from this kind of this, you know, this okay as and 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 this um kind of you know the 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 mis the failure CV. What's what's been your 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 um biggest personal success, personal professional, whichever you you want, Geffen. But what's been the the biggest success for you in the last twelve months, let's say? So I think 
Yeah, generally speaking, I think, you know, the way when I joined Benefix, we were about 30 people. We're now pushing 250. So the company's changed significantly um, and the investment and the kind of the business has changed a lot in that time, as you could imagine. Um, but, you know, I've, I've always worked for a CEO that is incredibly supportive. And it's part of the reason why the book is dedicated to him, because he's always been there for me. He's always trusted me. He's always believed in me. We've we've really disagreed. But. You know, we've always been been able to be very honest with each other. And I think that's just been so, so important. And that and the way that Benefix operates is, is the reason why I've been there for so long. Um, and so I think there's lots of stuff Benefix continues to do to support me over the last kind of 12 months. That's been important. Um, if I could stretch that 12 months to 18 months, then obviously I'd put the book in that professionally and personally. The book has obviously been just a just a huge part of my life. And, and you know, I can... I can certainly imagine, you know, laying on my deathbed and thinking what a good exercise it was to go through and how supportive and nice people have been about it. Um, and, and equally challenging, you know, you're putting yourself out there when you write a book and it could have gone disastrously, terribly wrong. And, you know, some people don't like it. Some people have really don't like it. Some people have hated the book. Um, and they've, uh, they've been, um, they've not held back about telling me that. Um, but it's been a, a, a hugely positive experience. It's helped my kind of confidence and self-esteem um incredibly well as well as obviously my uh, my public profile professionally yeah so i kind of i want to jump into that book if i can actually so the book's called the world of good right so kind of let, let's start from the title kind of what what made you come up with that with that title um so as i mentioned before so i was kind of trying to find the ways that i thought people could enhance the employee experience and kind of how could i catalog those and i picked up a few things kind of on my travels around the world and and then just it started to form a, a format, which was actually, you know, exactly as you said at the start, the employee experience is not a new thing. Lots of the stuff that we see as thought leading and a progressive now organizations are doing, people have been doing for hundreds, if not thousands of years. You know, some of the things I talk about in the book, African tribes have been doing for hundreds of years. Um, and so some of this stuff isn't new. We've just kind of forgotten it so you know I'm, I'm recycling some old ideas i guess um but putting them in the context of the employee experience to kind of show people that you know the way you treat your employees the way you speak to them the way you communicate with them the policies you make all that kind of stuff can make a big difference to their employee experience at work um, it doesn't have to be you going to buy you know massive hcm piece of technology to try and solve all your problems um and so that's kind of that's kind of what I try to do, and that's kind of what the book is is doing, is to kind of pick out these things that you could take to your organization tomorrow and hopefully start to have an impact, or at least start to get you to think a little bit differently about what the employee experience is. Okay, so so kind of, if if I was to ask you, in fact, let's let's talk about how, actually the process of writing a book. How how was that for you? Because you mentioned you know with with blogs and stuff, but how 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 was the process of writing a book for you? Um it's it's difficult um it's you know i wrote a couple of linkedin posts that got a bit of attention and, uh, and i guess that you know as you've seen from my background you know my before i kind of got into pensions and benefits my background was incredibly creative and i think you know i haven't really been able to for quite a long time release any of that creativity during my work um you know i don't get the opportunity to use animation skills or cartoon drawing skills um I guess public speaking is probably pulling up some of those old drama skills. Um, and so I think when I started to write the book, it was really to have more focus outside of work. I felt like I was putting so much of my life in my work basket 
that when work didn't start to go too well, that started to breed a bit of anxiety and bring up some of those bad feelings from long ago. So um, it was a way of trying to give me something to focus on outside of work, you know, kind of a proper kind of hobby or focus. Um, in retrospect, I probably shouldn't have chose something so closely related to what I do for a living, but um, there we go. And uh, I, I think it, it kind of goes in fits and starts. And I've spoken to a few people who have written their own books and they kind of say the same thing where, you know, pretty solidly for a, for a few months, I was writing it every weekend, going out to coffee shops and evenings and weekends and writing this book and sitting at home and writing it. And then about six months in, I hated it. I thought it was a load of shit and I thought no one's going to buy it. It's been a load of nonsense. And so I didn't do anything with it for about two or three months. And then I was in Manchester for some meetings with work and I was staying overnight and the apartment I'd booked turned out to be an awful apartment, dead flies everywhere. It was really cold. I couldn't get the heat into work. And so I was kind of like, well, I'm not staying in here all night. So basically just went out, found a late night coffee shop and just worked in there. But and when I finished my work, I kind of had nothing to do. I didn't want to do any more work. And so I thought, so I'll pick the book up again. Um, and so I started writing the book and I sat there for about four hours and did a, loads of writing for the, um, for the book and pulled lots of my notes together. And from that point on, then I kind of really kind of rallied myself forwards and, and then it just came to a logical conclusion. And I started to realize then that, you know, actually I could probably get this finished in about a month. And so started to give myself a target date and then, and then planned it. But yeah, it was about 12 months in total to write the book. Wow. Okay. So, so kind of, Pushing a little bit on this, if I was to ask you which was your, what's your favourite chapter within the book? And I know this is hard because every chapter is going to be a favourite chapter and a personal one too. Which one's your favourite? Yeah, well, I obviously don't want to tell you any of the chapters are yeah. rubbish. Um, but um, I think the one that really kind of struck with me is, you know, I've, I've been to Denmark a couple of times, I've been to Copenhagen a few times. Um, and I just, it's just a, such a wonderful culture, just as a society. They do so many things, as most of the Northern Europeans do. They do so many of them things well. They're kind of just really inclusive environments. They have laws that really protect people. They do the right thing by the environment and all that kind of stuff. Um, and there's a chapter of the book called Tillis, which is um, Danish for the word trust. And uh, Danes trust their employers and their government more than almost any other country in Europe. Um, their quality of life is greater. Their, um, their kind of basic living wage is higher than most other countries. Their working days are shorter, but their productivity is significantly higher. And it's like Denmark is a great example of, you know, it's a great case study for how the employee experience can really work. Um, and so I think it's just a really good kind of beacon of hope for anyone trying to make changes in society or in the workplace as to how it can be done what was the most challenging and when i say challenging i don't i don't use it in the past then but you know there'll be some which will which will bring up you know really kind of personal emotions for you i guess while writing these chapters which one was kind of a personal challenge for you to write about and again i know that's a hard question because you know you'll you'll invest yourself into every chap in every chapter within this book but personally which one was was it was maybe maybe challenges the wrong word to use maybe challenge our um interesting to see how you kind of approached that that chapter so i was um you know when i when i, when I was when i was younger and when i kind of um first moved to london um i found that whole move quite difficult you know i'd lived in cardiff all my life um i was living in um in my ex's house and um so i kind of I think I probably lost a bit of my identity by, by moving to that country. You know, for for a, a city populated with kind of seven or eight million people, I felt quite alone, which is, which is quite weird because I had friends and I had, uh, I had a partner. But um, 
during that time, I made use of connecting with as many people as I could professionally. So the job I had at Barclays, I was kind of heading up provider management. So I naturally met all, met all of our providers and started to just kind of build relationships with all the major benefit providers and pension providers. Um, I would make an effort to go to their socials and things like that and use my time um, and inevitably started to create a, a pretty close network of people. And, and as I explained before, that became incredibly useful when I lost my job and it's equally useful when the book came out because people jumped forward wanting to support because I'd either supported them or we were close or we'd made a connection in the past. And so people really, really rallied around when I've needed them to. Um, so I was really keen that I needed to put a chapter on networking in the book. And so I've used China as an example because uh, the culture of China is people rely on the connections they've got and they rely on favors from people quite a lot. And, uh, um, and it's, there's very much a quid quo pro term aspect to that society. And, um, and so I was really keen to put that in there because I just will never underestimate. I think people should massively not underestimate that, you know, you cannot have enough connections. You cannot not have enough friends in your life. The more people that are in your life, the more people you can kind of keep around you, um, the better it is. And, you know, you will only unfortunately ever really realize how many people are there to support you when things don't go right. Um, but you know, there's some people who, who I know will be listening to this because they're so supportive. They just support everything I do. Um, and I think they know how much they mean to me, but you know, there's, there's people that, you know, they're not friends, they're not work colleagues. They're not kind of family members. They're people I meet every now and then at a conference a couple of times a year, but I'm still really close to them, which is really strange. And, um, but I think that networking stuff is really important and it's, and that networking, you know, meeting somebody for coffee has led to me, um, you know, signing one of the largest deals in my career and in Benefex's history. So it's, um, it's, it's good to do for the individual. And it's good to do for organizations as well. Okay. Okay. So, so I guess these next couple of questions are a bit fire roundish. Um, and I said, if I round this, if you want to jump in deep onto them, then feel free to do so. So buckle in. Is that your second way of saying stop talking too much? Just give me one word. No, no, no. You, you, you will see these getting when, when they come up. So first question. If you was to, um, let's just say you have a stadium, a football stadium, and a million people is going to come out of that stadium. And let's just say all the million people are future employee experience designers. Anyway, as they come out of that stadium, there's a big billboard. And you own that billboard. What would you put on that billboard for a million people to see? Uh, I'd probably put something like concentrate your efforts on making life better for people. Okay. Okay, cool. If we was to, if I was to ask you five people everybody should follow um, in the employee experience world, who would they be? And again, this can be LinkedIn, this can be Twitter, this can be wherever you want. Who's the five people who, who kind of jump out to you? Um, so Jacob Morgan, the New York Times bestselling author, he gave me a lot of inspiration for the book. I believe the way that he talks about the employee experience aligns most closely with what I think. Um, the CEO and um, founder of Benefex, Matt Macri-Waller, um, you know, he's a great example of what a boss should be like, but he's also the guy that turned the Benefex ship around when he realized long before lots of other people did how, that the employee experience was going to be really important to the future of work. Um, there's loads of really good place people in this in our space but um there's a, a um a lady called natasha wallace who's the, the conscious coach so i've only known natasha for a short period of time but we've got so much in common and she's got a book coming out um uh, later this month 
Um, so um, uh, she, she's really good, really good from a well-being point of view. And again, all these people have got their own personal stories attached to why they kind of got into what they're doing. Um, I think, I th yeah, I think that's probably the, the, the ones that immediately spring to mind. There are so many good people, though. You know, you can follow some hashtags like uh, hashtag HR hour in the UK and the US. And, uh, you know, you'll find some really, really good people um, uh, through those. Methods. OK, cool. So, so if I was to say to what one book, one book would you gift it? Would you give as a gift to five people? What one book jumps out to mind to you? Can I give you a personal book and a professional book? Yeah, of course you can. Personal book, kind of uh, non-fiction, um, fiction, sorry, uh, would be The Old Man and the Sea by Ernest Hemingway. Uh, really short book, so easy to get through, but gives you a really good idea of kind of life and its struggles through one old man's story. It's just, uh, uh, it's a little bit contrived, but it's a really, really nice story. Um, and professionally, I think one of the most interesting books I've read um, in um, in the last 12 months has been The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. And it's a story about this guy who continued to struggle to do the right thing whilst building a company that was worth billions and the challenges he went through. And it's a really honest look at running a company. Um, and I think it just is a lot of life lessons in it as well. Can you remember the first time you ever got into trouble as a child? And and yeah, what happened? <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, so, I, I, so I was a good kid. I didn't get into trouble very often. But the first attention I got in school um, was for, uh, for picking flowers. Um, so I was caught picking flowers in the school ground and I was just messing about putting them in my hair, um, just uh, messing about in the school field with my mates. And uh, yeah, and I, and, I got, and I got told off for that. I also then got um, the gel washed out of my hair by one of our headmistresses because we were a nice church school and boys shouldn't have gel in their hair. Okay, <laughs> fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. So, so this is kind of getting back into... That's, pr that's a pretty rock and roll answer, I appreciate. And uh I know that might offend some of your viewers, but yeah, picking flowers and putting gel in my hair is about as naughty as I got. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's interesting. The the answers to questions from some of our guests have have gone from one end of the spectrum right through to the other. So, yeah, no, it's a, it's a good reply. So, I guess kind of getting back into this employee experience a little bit, and what, you know, one of the biggest questions is what is the future of? So, you know, employee experience is no no different, and I guess you know, but more we're seeing tech being brought in and kind of you know removing the friction of that of that tech and and making it I, I call it kind of making it more consumer grade but kind of just yeah what what do you think the, the future of of exp employee experience is so i think we, we get wrapped up quite a lot in the fact that tech's going to take over and that or everyone's jobs are going to be automated and you know it's just not going to happen you know society needs to be earning money and spending money to survive so if you automate all those jobs capitalism goes out the window and everything we do is based so much on capitalism you know if if there are millions of people millions and millions of people out of work then there's nobody keeping society alive and people are draining on society so we just can't, can't afford that to happen so i think that's a little bit of a red herring um clearly some jobs will be lost to automation but new jobs will be created you know the job i do now is not a job that existed 20 years ago and most people um, who've got kids now, the, the jobs they will do, no one's even thought of yet. You know, so um, I think that will, that's a bit of a kind of misnomer about the future of work. Um, I think anything we do around technology is going to be kind of human enabled. I think the reason why television programs like Black Mirror get so much attention from us is we can see that future coming. Um, we're living in it now. You know, 
people are walking around with with phones in their hands and airpods in their ears and you know that technology and that kind of the human are getting closer and closer but i think the byproduct of that is we're starting to see people struggle with their mental health um social media i think has played a big part in that for lots of people um the pressure to kind of conform and fit in and um act and live a certain way is, is growing really strong for people so i think the backlash against that which is going to really affect work is the need for more human interaction and more human connection and so as more people work remotely as more people will use technology to enable their work they're going to yearn for more and more human connection because well, i think one of the biggest challenges with remote working and i experienced this myself is it gets quite lonely you know i when i used to work in an office um, the social side of the office was probably I was more active on that social life than I was with friends I've had about for about 20 years. You know, you spent a lot of time with these people. And if we all start, suddenly start remote working, you're spending, you know, eight, nine, 10 hours a day on your own. That's going to put relationship on your, um, a strain on your relationships with your family and your partner, husband, wife, et cetera. So I think we're going to start yearning for more of that human connection. I think the reason why that's becoming so important to um, just human centered design of just even products, let, let alone the employee experience it's because that is a future we're all kind of yearning for. Yeah, I can I can definitely vouch for the remote working for sure. So five days a week remote working. Um, unless I'm on a that's at the office on a Friday night. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then then that's it. That's my that's my rock and roll. That's the the, the peak of my week is is podcasting, talking to other people. Um, but I guess kind of I'm bringing it a little bit more back to you here, Gavin, but. You know, we, we we've kind of talked about how human, 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 and 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 it everything needs to be human focused. The more we go tech, the more we need to be human focused, and and whatnot. Um, but kind of talking about you, and and actually, this is probably a deeper question. But do you even like yourself? Oh, what a question! Um, I yeah, I think I do. I think. Um, it hasn't always been that way. I think sometimes the love of yourself and the liking of yourself can come with age. Um, I think what's really interesting is, you know, um, I came out when I was 23 and I knew I was gay in retrospect, probably back to kind of when I was, you know, before 10 years old, I think, you know, looking back on it. Um, and I knew for sure when I was probably 16 to 18. So for more than five years, I kept that a secret. Um, and the, the heavy burden of what that is like, I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. Um, it was, I carried on with life and I hid it from people and my parents and my brothers and nobody ever guessed. It was a complete shock when, when I did come out. Um, and so at that time, I probably really hated myself because I just didn't want to, I didn't want to be that way. I didn't want to be different. I didn't want to get treated differently. Um, and even when I came out, you know, my parents, their biggest worry was that I was going to be treated differently and I was going to not be afforded the opportunity to get a good job or advance my career or make friends because of the way I was. And, um, you know, and, that, and that's a way that, you know, so many people will feel now and it's, you know, even thinking about it now, and this is like, what, this is uh, almost 20 years ago, it's still, it's still quite, you know, you can still really feel what it was like to be like that. So and back then, I probably hated myself um, from 23 onwards. And I started to, you know, I came out and I didn't get struck down by lightning and people were really supportive and I didn't lose any friends. And I've never experienced any knowing the uh, knowing homophobia or anything like that, which might 
it might help being six foot four and 16 stone, but um, I never experienced kind of any difficulties with that whatsoever. And it's never been an issue for any employer I've worked with. Um, and, you know, for lots of people in industry, actually, until they saw the dedications in the book, they had no idea. So lots of people, when they read the book, kind of sent me messages and kind of rallied around. Um, but, you know, there was, there was a recent campaign about kind of LGBT stuff called um, It Gets Better. And it really does. I think with every year that goes by, I probably like myself more. Uh, and counselling, you know, even recently has helped help me just kind of get a little bit more relaxed about life and to appreciate what I've got to offer. Because even for a long time, I thought the book was just bought by people who just wanted to support it, not that people actually thought it was very good. But I've now kind of convinced myself that actually, you know, there are a lot of people out there that did think it was good. So maybe I should be giving myself credit for that. Okay. Okay. So it's it's an interesting one. And I think when it comes to kind of, you know, I, I can't relate to, to that, you know, specific situation. But it's interesting kind of how our minds work, especially with, with you know, a big... A big thing like that and and kind of actually you know we we always perceive i guess you know it's a natural thing of always trying to think you know kind of always thinking of the worst of what will happen and um yeah it's 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 so nice to kind of when you hear these stories about actually like I say not getting struck down by lightning and and actually you know it's, it's it's never really as bad as what you've kind of told yourself before you've kind of you know before you kind of and make that announcement i guess and and yeah it's it's nice to hear i think that but there's you know a lot of people criticize online that you have things like pride month and pride parades and stuff like that um you know and i've i've never been part of the community in that sense i've i've really gone to kind of a, a gay clubs or events or anything like that um i don't actually really have any gay friends certainly no close friends um um and so I've never really been part of that culture. I've never gone on a parade or anything like that. I've never joined any pride events. Um, but uh, I would obviously fight to the death for people to be able to do that you know, if they wanted to. Um, but I think one of the things that people kind of really fail to realize is there'll be people in HR listening to this podcast. And you have people like I was at 23 working for you. And they might be 23 years old. They might be 43 years old. They might even be 83 years old. And it's a really good example of how different, you know, if assuming people listening to this aren't homophobic and don't have an issue with gay people, um, how would you feel if you found out that somebody was uh, disabled or bereaved um, or was coming out or whatever they were going through in their lives and challenging and that you did nothing about it because you didn't know? Uh, I think employers have a responsibility to take care of their staff. And I think part of that you know, removing the, um, you know, taking the uh, open door policy off its hinges and you're know, kind of turning that into a table to have a proper conversation. I think that's kind of what, it's a good story for, for HR to keep in mind that, you know, people are struggling with life every single day. And uh, why wouldn't you want to help them make that better? You know, I, I would want to help it better if it was somebody I just met at a bus stop and I found out they were struggling, um, let alone somebody who I was working with eight hours a day. Yeah. So, so I guess kind of, and I think you've kind of already answered it for me, but maybe it's more of a summary, but for anyone who's listening and kind of, and, and want to get into kind of this employee experience, what's the five, and I, I use five as it's an easy number to remember, but what, what's, what's your top tips of kind of, of getting into employee experience and actually what do you think the main reasons are of someone who's going to be good at it? What's, what's the traits you see, I guess? 
So it's quite, I think since writing the book, there's been a lot of people, because it's obviously helped my profile writing a book and, you know, the book has won an award and it got the bestseller list and I've, you know, kind of made some kind of, uh, you know, top influencer lists and stuff like that around the world because of it. Um, and a lot of people have said, you know, I want to do a job like you. I want to go and speak at conferences and I want to write blogs. and I want to spend time with HR people and I want to design products and I want to do all that kind of stuff. And the initial response to quite a lot of people is, you know, great. And you should, because the more people are doing this kind of stuff and, and kind of banging the drum for employee experience, employee engagement, the better. But fundamentally, you know, it's taken me almost 20 years to, to get to this point. So 20 years in a book and a lot of luck. Um, but fundamentally, I think the, the motivation has to be there. You know, I don't believe for a second you can be successful in HR if you don't genuinely care about people. And that might sound really obvious, but I know HR people who say they don't like people um, and they just kind of fell into this job. And it's like, I, it's, it's not a job you can do unless you really want to make life better for people. Because that's what the employee experience is. The employee experience is based on the idea that if we can make employees lives if we can improve their well-being if we can make them happier if we can give them more life satisfaction and job satisfaction if we can keep them happy and healthy they will work better and if they work better that's better for the company but fundamentally your task is making life better for the employee because that will ultimately make life better for your organization so it's all about doing the right thing by people developing people giving them what they need so you have to have that mindset i think you, you can't get into this stuff you couldn't even design a product in this area if you didn't genuinely believe that you wanted to make a difference and that you were trying to make. Okay, sound advice. Thank you. So, so you know, kind of coming to the end of this now, Giffen, and, and right at the start, I should pick um, a couple of numbers. Um, these numbers are tied to a, a random a random list of items that I've got. And the story is you're on a desert island and the items which you have are... So you picked number number three. And number three is a bottle cap. <laughs> really useful, brilliant. <laughs> oh, we get worse, don't you worry. Um, you have a model car. So, yeah. When, um, was it Hot Rod? Is that is that a car from back in the day? Matchbox? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not that old. Hot, hot Rod's for 50s. I was born in <laughs> 1980. But, yeah, I know what it is, yeah. Um, a piece of chalk. And your last one is a keychain. So you're on a desert island. What what are you doing with these um with these items, Gavin? <laughs> uh, God, this this would make like the most boring series of Lost ever. Um, <laughs> literally me. I'd, I'd be like like Tom Hanks has got Wilson. It'd be me in a toy car. I'd be talking to this toy car. Okay. Um, so that the toy car'd be my entertainment. I think. Um. And what do I have? Chalk and a bottle cap and a keyring. Yeah. Do we know what kind of keyring it is? Um, is it one of those ones that's got like a matchbox attached to it with matches in it? Ooh, you know what? Because it's you, Geffen. Yeah, let, let's do it. Perfect. Well, obviously make a fire um, and keep that fire burning. Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe the chalk. If I could find a cave or something on the island, I would. Uh, I'd get back to drawing. I'd leave my own kind of my mark on that island whether i died there or got rescued something like that okay and god knows what i do with the bottle cap make a make a boat for ants or something <laughs> i love it i love it so so kind of right at the start you know i asked you kind of what it is you wanted to do and and 
and as you know, Giffen, kind of we're constantly, we never really truly grow up, and we're always kind of developing. So if I was to ask you this question now, Giffen, what do you want to be when you grow older? What What would you answer be now? Another good question. Um, I guess you know, I, I think like so many people, I've been thinking, you know, that the political climate in this country and how divisive it's kind of being across the UK and the US. There's a, a really strong desire in me to make a difference to people's lives and, uh, you know, and actually make an impact on society and actually like truly give back. So uh, lots of stuff has been going out of my mind recently around you know, how I can do that, um, how I can do that through my work and how I can do that outside of work. So um, I think something I'm really passionate about at the moment is, is financial well-being and making making people's lives easier to manage, you know, helping them to be better with their money, helping them to, to save for the future. Um, and remove the kind of stigma and shame and burden that's attached to having money worries in this country. So I'd like to think that, you know, in the future, I, I can make headway in doing something about that um, and do a role or create a product that can really help people um, remove that burden because that's quite a significant burden to quite a lot of people. Okay. Okay. So, so Giffen, where, where can people kind of keep in touch? Where can we find out the stuff what you're up to? And, what, yeah, what conferences are, are you, are you going to be delivering where we can see you? So pretty much all the conferences are generally listed on the Benefex website. So hellobenefex.com. You can find uh, Benefex on Twitter and LinkedIn at hellobenefex. I'm on Twitter pretty um, actively at World of Good Book. And you can find me getting Aiden on uh, LinkedIn as well. Um, and a, a cursory Google of my name will show you kind of conferences I'm speaking at and you know, previous content and stuff I've, uh, I've written. Um, and obviously you can buy the book uh, on Amazon. Uh, as well. Perfect. All of them will be in the show notes. Kevin, it's been an absolute pleasure, and thank you for joining me on this Friday <laughs> Friday evening. I really appreciate it. A really, really interesting podcast. I've done a couple of these now, and this has certainly been the most enjoyable. So, um, congratulations on creating a, a really good podcast, and uh, thank you for asking. Thanks, Kevin. I really appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of the evening. Thanks very much. Take care. Bye-bye.